episode 41, Patrick and Cibrian speak with returning guest Elisabetta Valiante of One Cubit. Among other topics, the team discussed the need to create a standard benchmark for quantum computers and the varying approaches of private business and the public sector. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Hey, Cyprian, how you doing? Hi, Patrick. Doing well. Looking forward for another great episode of Entangled Things today. And, and as usual, you won't be disappointed. We're, we're joined by a repeat guest, so we must be doing something right. Elisabetta, can you introduce yourself again uh, to our audience, since uh, I'm sh- if they're smart, they listened to your last episode, but maybe they missed it. Hi, hello, everybody. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me again. So apparently, I didn't, uh, I didn't say too many wrong things last time, or maybe I did, and you were so amused, you <laughs> decided to invite me again. Um, my name is Elisabetta Valiante. I work at OneCubit um, in Vancouver. And yeah, I've been working there in the optimization group for quite a while now. It's been four years. So I have some experience in quantum computer, quantum software, and where this world is going. It's hard to know because there are so many things that change every day, so many new companies, so many new technologies. So I'm far away to define myself as an expert, but at least I'm passionate about the field and I have some contact with the film being my job eight hours a day. So yes. Um, I hope I can tell you something interesting about where quantum computing is going these days, what the industry needs and what we're talking about. That's excellent. So if you don't consider yourself an expert, I don't know who could. So I I definitely consider you an expert. Um, One Qubit was one of the first places I heard um, about some of the power and promise of of quantum along with uh, from Cyprian. So your, your company is near and dear to my journey as well. What do you want to talk about today? Um, I'd like to talk something that is becoming a very hot topic uh, for a quantum industry. So the need to create uh, a standard benchmark for quantum computers. So we are uh, we are at the dawn of quantum developments. We have we have very tech- a large range of technologies, and uh, it's hard to compare uh, with each other. Some technologies are more mature and more advanced. About quantum annealers, they are uh, reaching uh, something that is close to an industrial scale. They can solve big problems. Uh, some technologies are uh, very, very new. And uh, think of ion traps or photonics. Uh, that we have semiconductors, which is something in between. Mm, we don't know yet who will win the race because even more mature technology, we, we don't know if they will develop uh, fast enough or big enough to solve real uh, industry problems. The new technologies are so new that uh, they just handle with uh, a small amount of qubits. So they don't even claim to solve industry problems, but m- maybe they will be the winners. Um, and um, it's, um, it's important eh, in some way to define some standards, to define benchmarking, uh, benchmark standards, uh, to distinguish which technology um, uh, is faster. It's not just faster, it's better at the moment, according with these standards and also how they evolve. So it's important to define some way to measure uh, the advancement of technologies so to keep records of the data so we can tell, uh, oh, look, they were the slowest or the smallest or whatever um, 
metric we defined uh, six months ago, and now uh, they are still the smallest, but they are growing the fastest. For example, so are, are you are you looking at things like coherence time and and the gate speeds and things like that as well, or is it more about um, I, I, what are you benchmarking based on? I guess that's a good question. This is a big question. This is a big question the industry needs to agree on. Because what, what's happening until now is that every new industry, because they have new technology, they define their own benchmarking and in some way describe what the technology does the best. Uh, but also, uh, it's a problem because if everybody defines a new benchmarking, uh, then we are not doing any comparison. It's difficult to understand how things evolve and how to compare different hardware. Um, so what you said, yes, coherence or um, error corrections, uh, that those are all important points, but those works on a small scale, on a, um, a, a, a technology on the smallest scale, but uh, it's also important to see how the full uh, system works. So, for example, IBM introduced the quantum volume, that is some way to define how the full system works. Um, we suggest something even on a higher level, so something like a, an application benchmark. So not only to measure how good uh, a computer is, but also to say uh, how good it is to solve specific problems. Yes, that, and that's, that's actually quite uh, taken from the playbook of classical computing. I'm sure Cyprian remembers uh, the, the SQL benchmarks where... You know, well, Oracle 15 or 5000 runs this benchmark this quickly and Microsoft SQL Server runs it this benchmark this quickly. So uh, it, it are you borrowing pages from those from those chapters of classical computing or are you because the technologies are so different, you're finding you have to think beyond that box? Well, we need a starting point. We need to define uh, what we want to measure and maybe we will change it with time. So, yes, we have very good examples uh, from classical computer. When you want to test a new CPU you, you test uh, or a new supercluster, you test on specific problem, you test on specific compiler, you define your things and you change all the hardware. If one day you want to define a new compiler, you don't change the hardware, you only change the compiler. Um, with the optimization um, problems, we have libraries of standard optimization problems. So if you define a new solver, you test them on, on this problems and you already know the results from all the previous solvers so you compare uh, you can compare directly with the previous results with quantum computer we're still at the beginning and of course most of these tests with the will depend on the technology as well so we we need to have specific tests for specific technologies but also we need to define what we want to measure and how we want to measure and what are the data we want to compare with. So to create a database that is accessible to everybody and then you can compare with, uh, with all their data. And I think for example, many, uh, sorry, just let me say this. Um, for example, many of the people are doing this. I'm not saying that they're not doing it, but for example, when you, you compare with classical algorithms, you need to be sure you are using the classical algorithm at the best of their potential. So it must be used like the state of the art implementation of, I don't know, simulated annealing, for example, uh, tuned with the right temperatures. Um, while sometimes, maybe not in a literature paper, but uh, in the press releases, you see, oh, yes, we compared with the simulated annealing and we are much better, but it's not clear which version of simulated annealing or which hardware and with which parameters. And this is very important because if you are saying you are better than the classical version, um, it must be done respect to the best version of that uh, classical version. 
So having everything in, a, in the same database where everything is clear, which problems you are solving and on with the, um, which uh, algorithm you are comparing with and what are the results of, other, of different hardware, that, that would be a very nice thing to have. And we hope we can build something together with other companies. I, I think this is one issue that we've seen time and time again with the uh, uh, certain teams or companies claiming, yeah, we've been better at this uh, implementation or that implementation on classical computer. Just for, let's say, a few weeks later, somebody comes up and says, yeah, but you are not using the, the best possible implementation on the classical computing drive. Hence, your results are questionable. Um, what I wanted to, to, to say regarding the, uh, uh, regarding the benchmarking, I think it's very important to... Uh, to benchmark things at the, let's say, core level, but also important to bring them to a higher level, as you mentioned, right? Even at the application level, because I believe at the end of the day, what the world will benefit from is really the speed up in real life applications, right? So it's important to benchmark, uh, I don't know, how many physical qubits you need to uh, have a logical qubit or things like that. But at the end of the day, I would dare to say it's probably more important to be able to measure how quick, but in a reliable way, how quickly uh, quantum computers can solve real-world problems. And I think that's where maybe benchmarking at the end of the day will need to be. It's clearly not there, but I, I, I believe that's kind of the the target for it. Well, does that mean that you, you're basically pitching that, that Grover's and, and Shores has to have a big role in this? And the universal side, because those are really the only real work uh, algorithms that I've that I've seen out there. And there is another thing uh, uh, also, uh, Patrick. Uh, I don't think we will be soon living in a world where we will have pure uh, quantum computing solutions. I think we will live for a long time in a world where we will have hybrid, where part of the problem is solved in, in classical computing. Think about, you, you mentioned uh, Shore, right? Sure, does not actually resolve factorization right. per se, right? It, it's order it resolves finds. the order finding sub problem of factorization. So it's always kind of a hybrid thing. So I believe that in addition to the intrinsic benchmarking of the quantum computer, maybe even more difficult will be to measure how efficient they are in kind of bridging the gap between classical and and and, and quantum, which is not easy uh, uh, always. Sometimes it's very difficult, I believe. Yeah, you pointed out several um, issues that uh, uh, need to be discussed and clarified. Because, uh, yes, we can tell that a circuit is very fast in running the short algorithm. But then we have to ask ourselves, which problems are we solving? Or we have a new, a new <clears throat> photonic device that is very good in doing uh, uh, boson Gaussian sampling. Uh, but uh, again, the question is, which problem are we solving with this measurement? And, and of course, uh, when you are developing a new technology, you need abstract problem, you need uh, theoretical problems uh, to test this technology. But then you also need to know, uh, know okay, what are the uh, problems we actually can solve with this technology? And the answer until now is optimization. The answer until now uh, has been uh, quantum simulations. And there are new technologies, so maybe there will be other problems uh, that will be answered. For optimization, of course, we are using the most advanced quantum computers, but we also have to ask ourselves, are we really going to get better to the state-of-the-art optimizers? 
Gurovi, for example, or uh, which is the most famous, uh, do quantum computers have the potential to to actually improve, or are we using hybrid solution that you mentioned all the time? And if we use hybrid solution, which is the part that is actually doing uh, the, the work? Because uh, hybrid solutions often are black boxes, so we don't know which is the classical part, we don't know the which is the, um, the, the quantum part. So if we only get benchmarking for the full black box, we don't know if we are ben- benchmarking classical or quantum. Yes, we are benchmarking a new implementation. Right. But then it should be uh, also compared to the state of the art. Is this, this better than the state of the art? So um, it should be clear what uh, are the performance of the quantum part, of the classical part, and uh, how much the quantum part is actually improving uh, to get an estimate of um, how the technology um, uh, improves uh, um, in years or months. Yeah, the devil's definitely in the details. It's, it's that that's the... So I think one qubit may be well positioned to do this because you're not manufacturing hardware. And so therefore, I think that that puts you in a in a much more, um, you know, not a non-biased state than somebody who's actually manufacturing hardware. Well, this is this has been our, our position from the beginning. We are hardware agnostic. We want to solve the problems, uh, and uh, we actually we are happy that quant- if quantum computers work, when they will work. But uh, we are not pushing for a particular technology because we are not developing the, te- the technologies. Um, so yes, this is uh, our approach: is uh, is to be hardware agnostic and uh, to collaborate and test different uh, um, different uh, hardwares and technologies. And the problem of having such uh, um, an unbiased, uh, such an objective benchmarking, um, in some way can be the hardware industries. Because even if they get our hardware tested, uh, they test it, of course, they benchmark it. They also ask us to, to test it and benchmarking. When they say the result, when they see that the results are not the very best, what they expect, that they don't always agree to make the results public, and I think this is um, um, this is bad for for the industry because uh, uh, if um, you can prove that um, uh, some implementation is not the best to solve a problem, I think people should should know. But of course, the the manufacturer they say, oh, you know what, you are not going to publish this, you cannot. Yeah. So your customers, so let's release only this part where the hardware shows uh, it's uh, working at the best. So but you said only our problem. I think it's a problem also of bigger companies. You said something interesting that I've thought of uh, quite a lot, which is we don't know which will be the technology of the future. I- I've thought about that often. Like if we could get a glimpse into the future and know that it's superconductors or trapped ions or photonics there'd be a temptation to like run in that direction and, and not do the others. But what I think is much more likely in the short term or in the short term being the next decade is we're going to learn things in trapped ions. They're going to help us with superconductors that'll help us with fermions that'll help us with photonics. And so it's the fact that there's all these competing standards that will allow one of them to emerge as a dominant, but maybe that the others have niche applications that that maybe one of them just is much better or much more suited to a certain problem set um i i don't know but but i think it's also the problem is that most of the companies that are doing this are companies and that's also fairly striking because it, it wasn't too long ago that it would have been unheard of to talk about this kind of elemental science being developed by the 
the corporate world instead of by governments and education. And a governments and education, of course, you're going to get more of an inclination to publish no matter what, because they're trying to explore, you know, they're, they're, they're not profit motivated, but the others, because of the profit motivation, we're seeing something that is, doesn't usually touch science, which is the, um, you know, we don't want to have a bad, uh, a bad thought about our technology that might limit its dollars because it's not the fastest. I don't think most education uh, places would care whether they were the fastest. They're, they're trying to pursue the science. Yeah, in fact, it's very interesting that the governments and the public sector is getting so interested in quantum computers. Like there are there are national plans for quantum developments in the US, in Canada, several countries in Europe. So yes, an interest from the public sector would help because, of course, even if we want Qubit, we want to build a platform like, like this. First of all, we are not sure how many people are, are going to pay to access this uh, uh, this platform. Uh, so we don't know if it's sustainable without uh, any support. Um, and then uh, we are not sure that the, the hardware companies will agree to share all this data. So yeah. I, mean, I think, Patrick, you are bringing in a very, very interesting kind of uh, very subtle nuance to, to this discussion. Maybe we will be able to discuss it in an episode. I think that there is a big difference uh, if you look at the early days of classical computing versus the early days of quantum computing in terms of uh, the sheer balance of powers between corporate and government, right? Mm -hmm. I think in the 1940s, 50s, uh, I would dare to say it was more in the favor of the government. I, I think in, in the, the early decades of this century, it's more in the favor of, of, of the corporate world rather than in the government. 100%. That could be one of the explanations why kind of this, let's say, uh, uh, journey spearheaded by, by corporations. But I'd like to get back a little bit to the benchmarking and ask Elisabetta, what, what do you think are some of the most difficult technical problems that, let's say, need to be addressed or need to be uh, incorporated into a, a, a proper benchmarking uh, uh, approach? Because I would, I, I mean, I understand the utility of it from the point of view of measuring and comparing, right? I would like to to help our audience maybe understand. Okay, what's the, what are some of the challenges to actually kind of make this work from a technical point of view? Well, as a scientist, I've done a lot of benchmarking, and I can say that the main ones, the main um, difficulty is to tune the parameters. Like not only um, algorithms, uh, also the, the the machine, also the hardware. Usually, they have a lot of parameters, and um, that's because they want to ensure a large range of applicability. Uh, but uh, this means that you have to tune your parameters in the best way for your problems. Just uh, to give um, a small example, um, the temperatures in uh, simulated annealing or even in quantum annealing, they are like <clears throat> very, very important. They depend on the problem. So on one side, uh, you want to have the best parameters to solve your problem. On the other side, you want to define some parameters that are um, not over um, overtuned. Like you don't want to have parameters that only work on one problem. You want to define some parameters that work really well, for example, on a class of problems. So once you define them, once you tune them, uh, you can solve a problem of the same class without, to do, without doing all the work uh, again. And this is very expensive. 
from the computational point of view because you have to run many, many experiments uh, and just for one class of problems, you have to explore the parameters range and uh, nobody wants to do that. <laughs> like um, I've used uh, solvers that uh, has... Um, that, um, Solvers that have um, uh, self-tuning um, parameters um, um, tools uh, already implemented, they are very convenient. Of course, they are slower because they spend some of the time that might use for optimization to tune the parameters. Uh, so if you compare these solvers against other solvers where you have done all the jobs uh, of the job of tuning the parameters before, you say, oh my God, this solver is so slow, but actually it's doing the work for you that you've done, uh, you've done in the past uh, just by yourself. So it's, um, it's challenging. You never know what are the best parameters. Uh, you can say those are the, the, the parameters uh, that work quite well or the best parameter I found when um, investing this amount of time or this amount of money because, of course, uh, computation is always something you're going to pay. Um, but you never know if you can find some parameters that are a little bit better, that can improve a little bit the performance of your solver or your hardware. So it's always something that uh, it must be done. You have to do, uh, at some point you have to stop. Um, and then that's the, the, the benchmarking, the benchmarking you're, you're going to have using these parameters. And again, as long as everything is clear and transparent, um, which are the parameters used for, on which class of problems these parameters have been tuned, everything is fine. But uh, as a benchmarker, as in my experience, is one of the tasks that is most boring and uh, it takes a lot of time. And uh, it would be nice if we could find a way to automatize it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, uh, uh, that's, that's really interesting, especially when you're thinking even at the, let's say, simplest problem of, I don't know, comparing two different systems, right, or two different approaches because they have so many different uh, uh, possible settings. Like there's always going to be the discussion of, yeah, but did you use the best settings? The analogy I, I, I uh, use to explain these challenges always is like when you, let's say, want to compare, I don't know, the torque of two engines and both engines have a hundred different knobs that can adjust various parameters of their, the, the way they, they, they run, obviously in, in, in quantum, it's much more, more, much more difficult and much more complex, but it's really like you could say, okay, this first engine performed much better than the first one, but hey, we didn't set anything on, the, uh, on one of the engines, right? We just set it at default and then we tried to run it. So there's always the question of, right. did you use the best com possible combination? And I can see where that, that difficulty actually, actually is. And I would also like to ask you like, um, are you always, let's say, have the capability of actually using all these knobs uh, in in a system? Like when when you are, uh, let's say, trying to do a benchmark on a certain system, uh, is the the uh, let's say the the manufacturer of that system always capable of providing everything that is to be set? Uh, or sometimes there are difficulties even with the fact that some of the let's say uh, I don't know, parameters of the systems are simply too complicated to adjust uh, for that to happen? Uh, well, yeah, that's a very interesting question. As um, uh, working on qubit, we get access, early access to several solvers. 
So sometimes uh, we see parameters that uh, are maybe in the documentations, but then they tell us, uh, oh, this is not implemented yet. Uh, sometimes uh, there are parameters and they just, we don't even understand it because they are so specific for the hardware that uh, they recommend some value. And maybe because we have, to, um, we have to limit the space of parameters uh, according with the time we have for tuning. They say, okay, if they recommend this value, let's uh, fix this value and let's not think about this. Um, sometimes there are parameters that we suggest. Like, uh, or maybe we, we see that uh, a parameter um, can change in a specific range and we say, oh, maybe this parameter should have a larger range for the following reason. Sometimes we suggest, oh, we should add this parameter something that uh, the, the user can, uh, can fix. I- uh, just the, for the heuristic solvers, uh, we always ask that the seed should be a parameter that the, the user can fix. Because uh, when we try to understand uh, what is the role of different parameters, you don't want to have the random factor on top of that. Otherwise, you are <laughs> different because of random factors or because you are changing the parameters. At least uh, you can always run 100 experiments and understand if uh, where the where is the randomness and where, where is the change the parameter but if you are testing uh, some solver for the first time you want to have exactly the same chain of um, events happening uh, with the same seed and then only change one parameter at a time so we can understand what is the role of each parameter separately and then we can try to mix all the parameters together to understand so what's going on. I would I would imagine that environmental variables are going to be a real problem here because a lot of these systems, most of these systems that I can think of require such low temperatures. And I would imagine that if there's a fluctuation in the temperature, <clears throat> it, it's a it's a parameter, even though it's not something that's normally set. I would also imagine that there's other parameters that we're not even thinking of, like what's the solar flare activity and how many neutrinos are going through the room. And, you know, with we don't have that with classical computing as much. We have bit rot and we have things that can, you know, interference but we can fix that with like a Faraday cage. Um, is a Faraday cage or something like that something that you'd look into to <clears throat> establish the base benchmarks to keep out extra radiation to to you know monitor the temperature to make sure the temperature always stays within this grade when you're doing the benchmark so that you know random events, as you just said, don't interfere environmentally. Well, from my point of view, uh, let's say I, it, this is not my my job. Like I think this uh, being the job of people uh, building the computer, developing the technology to be sure that the, the, the instrument is isolated and um, the noise is kept to the minimum. From my point of view, any random uh, um, event is noise. Um, when I talk about parameters, about temperature simulating annealing, I'm talking about a specific, uh, the temperature that you can set. So you cool down your... So, so you're saying this, these are already taken up by the parameters. The environmental conditions are taken up by the hardware vendor. The parameter in- is something you, can, uh, you have power on. Uh, and you can set to have your uh, um, your instrument to work uh, at best for the problem you're going to solve. Uh, the things you don't have a control, uh, you, you don't have any control on. I, I call it noise. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so all, all you do is control is make sure there's not so much noise that it throws off the result. Yeah. Okay. The the the, the manufacturer should take care of that. Yeah, I, I do want, it, it raises the question of, I wonder how much the, uh, if those who are not aware, Faraday cages are 
um, basically wire mesh or, or wire cages that allow, um, don't allow currents through. So if you had a solar flare and you had components that were exposed to the solar flare, an electromagnetic pulse, for example, um, the ones that are unprotected are more likely to be damaged where the ones that are protected, the Faraday cage absorbs and, and prevents the, um, the, the values from getting in. Let's say I come from astronomer, so I know what you're talking about, but my, my role here is different than my role as an astronomer. Um, when I was an astronomer, I worked on software uh, that um, uh, reduced data from satellites. So when you get data from the satellites, you have to take care of all these uh, um, all these glitches that can, can come from neutrino or gamma rays or cosmic rays or solar flares. Usually, uh, the, the, the final user, the final astronomer that gets data, uh, these data are cleaned from this effect. Then the, the astronomer gets the data. There is still noise there. And then it depends if he's reducing a spectrum, uh, they will need uh, to tune the parameters um, of, the, of the fit to, to get the, the best measurements of um, an emission line, for example. And this is the work of the astronomer. But the work of the, um, of the software that, uh, um, that does the, the, the cleaning uh, of the data, uh, this was work done from people that developed the technology as well, that built the instrument. So there are two different steps. Let's say my role now is uh, what the final astronomer does. I'd like to have my data cleaned from uh, something that uh, we don't expect, that is not a measurement I expect. And then, of course, there is more work to do to, to understand the noise and to uh, get information from your data. But uh, there are some kind of uh, um, noise, some kind of elements that only the people that build the instrument can clean like any effect that you don't expect from your machine that you know it's coming from the sun or from cosmic rays. And at the end of the day, it's your responsibility to make sure your machine works as best as possible, right? right? Given the conditions on planet Earth, because those are a given. Uh, I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about what kind of problems, of optimization problems, for instance, are you uh, using to run these, these benchmarks? Do you have like a fixed set of them? Do you kind of adapt uh, uh, depending on what kind of of, of, uh, uh, of device you are you are testing? How how do you pick your optimization problems that you use for benchmarking? Well, let's say um, the, the machine that we have available today they are all Ising machine, and so mm-hmm. I talked about this already last time. Uh, Ising machine solves Cubos, which yeah. are quadratic unconstrained um, binary optimization problem. Uh, so um, any NP-hard problem can be converted into a cubo in principle. Uh, the question must be, do you want to do it? <laughs> because in principle, you can take any NP-hard problem, so vehicular routing, um, well, sorry, there are more specific names of these. I'm already talking about the applications, but molecular similarity, uh, community detection, you can uh, take these problems and convert them to a cubo and solve them. The problem when you convert these problems to a cubo is um, that they are very, very, they, they become much, much harder. So there are some problems that they are naturally a cubo. Um, if you think about uh, uh, max um, <coughs> two sub problems, um, they, um, sorry, yes, uh, two sub problems, max K, um, problems, uh, which is the satisfiability problems, they are naturally a cubo. And they are solved in a very, very efficient way by using machines. 
Uh, same happens for the community detections. If you want to, uh, if you have a, a graph and you want to divide this graph into two groups, two clusters, and by judging um, which nodes in this graph are more connected. Uh, if you just want to solve the problem for two groups, it's a naturally a cubo formulation, and the Ising machine are very, very uh, efficient in solving them. When you go to more complex problem, like a TSP problem, the Tavares um, says person problem, uh, you can still convert into a cubo, but they become very, very hard. Like uh, it depends on which flavor of uh, problem you want to solve. If you want to introduce uh, multiple travelers uh, or uh, capacity or uh, time windows, uh, you start with a problem with 10 jobs, uh, with five jobs and uh, two workers that you can solve with the pen and paper. You transform into a cubo and you already have hundreds and hundreds of variables because you have to, you have to introduce constraints. You have to do the, um, uh, the binary encoding. So do we really want to do this? Because uh, like a problem, as I said, with five jobs, uh, you can solve it with a um, pen and paper. If you have 10 jobs uh, or 20 jobs, Gurobi is super efficient. And uh, do we really want to convert these problems into a cube where uh, even the smallest problem becomes uh, almost intractable with the computers we have today? Yes, we can hope the computers will become larger and more connected, but we are making harder problems much, much harder only because we want to solve cubes. So I think at some point we have to decide what are the problems that are worth working with the quantum machines we have. And then maybe there will be a new quantum machine with a new technology that will solve TSP in a very nice way. But I don't think it will be an Ising machine, to be honest, because transforming problems into a cubo is so inefficient that... Uh, it cannot be the way to go for optimization. I don't think it will be. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> hmm. You've got a, you've got a lot of experience to make that call better than better than us. So we, we we'll take your word. Um, we're we're running low on time, but we're not out of time. Is there is there anything we should be thinking about or looking about as as you guys come and put together? Is this is there a timeline for when you want to have this benchmarking system available, or is it still too early days? I think the industry should discuss this and define what are the best benchmarking. And if we define that there are different benchmarks for different machines, that's fine. But I think there should be mm, better communication. I understand that uh, most of it is marketing. So, uh, of course, uh, mm, companies need uh, investors. Company needs to, uh, to be in the news. So having a great headline that uh, attract people, um, attract uh, clicks, uh, it's important. Uh, but we have to clarify what is marketing and what is real benchmarking. And when we talk about the real benchmarking, we should define what, what are we measuring, with which instruments, everything should be transparent and objective. Mm, agreed. Cyprian, anything else we should uh, touch on before we wrap things up? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that is kind of, uh, let's say, uh, been on my mind for, for quite some time re regarding the, the, the whole benchmarking, uh, the whole benchmarking process, right, is how far do you think we are from, uh, let's say, truly standardized, transparent benchmarks? Uh, I'm thinking here just like my kind of, uh, let's say, uh, example is always the the stuff that we are having, say, in uh, OLTP systems, right? Uh, online transactional processing systems in databases where you have today uh, a set of benchmarks that really nobody 
contests, right? Is they, they they run their 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 stuff through those. They get some numbers. If the numbers are good, they are uh, starting the marketing machine. If the numbers are not so good, they they keep trying, right? But they are fairly like accepted, right? Nobody is challenging them. They're they're kind of accepted and. Uh, it would be great at some point, I think we're far from that point, it would be great at some point to have these these kind of benchmarks because on a general note, I think the number one enemy of, of quantum computing in general is hype, right? I, I've seen hype doing a lot, especially marketing hype. I've seen marketing hype doing a lot of damage, for instance, with artificial intelligence uh, or, or machine learning, right? And I, I, I see that, that hype is already doing quite some damage uh, uh, to, to quantum computing, sometimes uh, it's setting some totally unrealistic expectations to the point that you mentioned. Not every problem is going to be solvable by quantum computers. That's that's the harsh uh, reality. So I would like to to, to get your perspective on, on how long do you think this journey uh, uh, will, will be? Because clearly at this point, there are so many, let's say, divergent interests uh, and so many forces that are working in, in, in this field, uh, let's say, maybe to the opposite direction of that. Well, having a universal benchmark, it will take a while because technologies are a different stage of development. So, of course, you cannot, uh, you, you cannot run, you cannot solve any real problem when you have like a, a handful of qubits which is okay for a technology that just started the development. I'm not saying that they are not going to work. So it is difficult. Of course, we have to define different benchmarking for the technologies that are just at the beginning. But I think we have to start thinking about this and we have to start implementing it for the technologies that are more advanced. So at least we can say, are these technologies really growing as we're expecting or not? And then as soon as uh, the, um, the newest technology um, become better, we can compare with them. Or maybe uh, we will not solve optimization problems with these new technologies. Maybe we will solve something else and we will introduce new benchmarking. Again, it's, it's, it's fine. Maybe um, we will shift uh, our interest because uh, the new technologies will, uh, will not be the best for optimization, will be the best for machine learning or for quantum simulations. So we will have to define different problems, different classes of problems for different um, uh, for different technologies. Again, we have to learn. <laughs> we have to learn what these computers will do <clears throat> and what they can do the best. And the best way to do it is to have a platform where all, a platform where all data are shared and where it's possible to test uh, all technologies on all problems. So you can tell, okay, this is really not working for optimization, but is great for quantum simulations. And then let's use this for quantum simulations. Um, as long as we don't have that, it's, the, it's hard because, uh, again, um, because of the hype, uh, every new hardware will be the best in doing something that we are not really sure if it's useful or not and how it is in respect to others that are the best in doing something else. <laughs> one, one of my favorite uh, things to do when I talk to audiences about quantum computing is just... Uh, doing a comparison between the, let's say, uh, the sheer speed, the physical speed of classical versus quantum. And then we, when they realize that actually quantum processors, from the point of view of the sheer speed, are much slower, <laughs> actually, mm. right, than, than, than classical ones, there's usually like this moment of, 
oh, but we thought the quantum computer is uh, going to be something that has a million times more speed than the classical one, a billion times more memory. And uh, it's, 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 it's very important to understand, really. I think this, at the end of the day, this plays down to which problems are suited for which types of, 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 of devices. I think uh, that's, uh, that's kind of very well pointed out by, by you. Not all devices will solve all problems. Uh, and no. that's something we will have to live with. <laughs> I'm quite confident to say that today, right now, there is no quantum computer that does better than classical computer anything. <laughs> no, you're right. Well, they, they're good at burning budgets. How about that? <laughs> and they so operate at much lower thing. temperatures. And they, they operate at much lower temperatures. So, <laughs> well, it's always great to talk to you. We really appreciate you willing to come back. Uh, it just means you're a glutton for punishment or we must be doing something right. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me and goodbye to everybody. Thank you. Thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure. Later, Cyprian. Later. Bye.